Hey there, thank you for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast. We're on the Blog Talk Radio Network, Apple iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our show sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a platform speaker or you're a meeting planner, all these in-person events are beginning to happen once again. Get together and find one another at SpeakerMatch.com. What if you were a U.S. Navy combat pilot who gets shot down over Vietnam and you got to figure out what to do and how to go about it, but you do, and then you go on to not only earn your, your wings, but also earn your MD, become certified in several medical specialties, and then you get a call from the Secretary of Navy. Well, this is the, the life that our guest today, Tom Snyder, has, has lived and he's written a book about it called The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man. Dr. Tom Schneider, welcome to the Big Time Talker podcast. Oh, Burke, thank you so much. What a tickle to be here. Let's, uh, let's rewind way back. As a kid, was there any inkling that, that uh, a young Tommy Schneider w- was going to accomplish any of these things? Tell me about your childhood. Oh, boy. We need a long podcast, but uh, my childhood was bizarre because in those days, and I mean that because there are some of you uh, out listening who are my age, 77, back in those days, families were large. We had five in my family. It was a disharmonic family. I guess the word family translates into dysfunctional, but mine was clearly that. Both parents were severe alcoholics um, and had, I'm sure what psychiatrists would define with big words as well. Uh, And there were five of us. The interesting part primarily was that my uh, brother, one of my brothers, Mark, who's in the book, was born with cerebral palsy. Now, a lot of people say, what is cerebral palsy? So you need to think of um, Stephen Hawkins. I'm sure everybody's seen or heard or should know. Yeah, so Stephen Hawkins, without being crude, really looked like an Olympic runner compared to my brother, Mark. So Mark lived until he was 17, never said a word, uh, never could do a thing except lie down. And and I became, as a young boy, the primary caretaker for him. Uh, my mother and father were both alcoholics and wanted very little to do with him, although I must put a, a little claim in, my father certainly did love him in his way. And it comes to that phrase, it's the best he could do, but he certainly did. So I learned a great deal from taking care of my speechless brother who talked to me with really only two symbols. He would wrinkle his lip, and that meant no, and he would open his jaw and turn it to the side, and that was yes. So his mind, Burke, was functional. He understood, just like Hawkins, but he could do nothing, not walk, not anything. So my job, even as a young boy, was to feed him through a feeding tube. It was to, uh, not to be gross, but to debulk him because he couldn't have normal uh, urine and bowel movement uh, activity. So it was a a learning experience. Now, my four other siblings, or three other siblings, uh, really looked at all of that with horror, and and it had an effect on them. Additionally, uh, my father had tons of anger with his alcohol, as did my mother, But who could they take it out on? Not my brother, Mark. In their eyes, he was a saint sent to them from God as whatever. Um, They just couldn't deal with it. 
and they couldn't deal with my other uh, brother and sister, uh, two brothers and sister. Uh, so there was only one other person available, and that was the big brother, me. Yeah. So there was much abuse in terms of physical abuse, um, sexual abuse. All of that went on to the point where at about, oh, I think I was about 16, Burke, I said, I think this is a better life, and I ran away. Tom so, Sanders, our guest today, and uh, we're talking about his book, which, by the way, is, is available at Amazon.com, wherever books are sold. It's called The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man, Surviving When Life Sucks. And you're talking about a pretty, frankly, a pretty sucky childhood there. Um, you did say something that was interesting that I want to ask about before we move on, though, and that is that your brother Mark, who had uh, severe cerebral palsy, could communicate with those two uh, in those two ways. How did you figure out that... I think you said if he moved his jaw to the left, it meant yes. How did you figure that out? Well, just by his response. The only other things that he could do uh, happened to be laugh and cry. And and I was pretty perverted. There was a fellow that claimed to cure people named Oral Roberts years and years and years ago and had a television show. Sure. And I would, I would uh, kid with my brother Mark and say, we're going to get you healed today and put his head up to the television screen, the old black and white screens, yelling, heal, heal, along with Roberts. Right. And, my, and my brother Mark thought it was hysterical. So he just laughed and laughed and laughed. And that was kind of the, the, the relationship I had with him. And I would say to him, you know, uh, was that fun? And he would move his mouth. And it was so over time, uh, those two symbols became our way of communicating yes and no. Uh, and he did a tremendous job. Uh, you, you bring up a, a point that someone asked me the other day, and I thought, I, th- I think maybe I'll bring it up now. And that is the second part of that title, Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man. I am an ordinary person, and everybody knows that. But the second part is surviving when life sucks. And that has become for me a philosophical point because one of the questions that people ask after they read the book is, yeah, but how do you actually get to the point where you can survive an abusive set of parents, alcoholism, uh, physical abuse? Uh, you know, I have burns on my fingertips for my father putting it over the stove. How do you get through that? Wow. And when it was time uh, for a beating, he would uh, bring me into the living room, put chairs around, put the kids, my brothers and sisters, in the chair and pull my pants down and use a belt like they did in those days and start whipping me. Now, my brothers and sisters panicked. Their thought was, oh, my God, I hope that never happens to me. That created a fear that has persisted to this day. They live with an anxiety and a fear. I guess I could have had that, but for some reason, I don't have the answer to this. I wish somebody smart could tell me. I didn't. As I was being beaten, I would sit there and yell inside, never outside, because you get more. Uh, and my, um, uh, and the, the yelling was, go ahead. Go ahead and see if you can hurt me, because you can't. And, and I had a phrase. It was, you can burn me, but you can't break me. And so it was an anger that built up in me to where it was, bring it on. Bring it on. Try to try to hurt me because it ain't going to happen. Now, why do I tell you that little story? Because as the book goes on, it also talks about, and we can get to that, about uh, the problems I had after being shot down in Vietnam. I landed in Agent Orange. And Agent Orange, for those who don't know, is a severe toxin 
we paid no attention to it back in the late 60s and 70s. But it proceeds with diabetes, with lymphoma, cancers, Alzheimer's, all sorts of diseases emanate from this Agent Orange. How do you get through those? How do you how do you get cancer? How do you get a perforated bowel? How do you end up with a heart attack? How do you get by? What happens when you have bypass and then they tell you years later you're going to have to have stents? That same early philosophy was there. It was go ahead, tell me something worse. Go ahead, put a knife in my chest and open me up for bypass. See if you can hurt me. I don't know if that explains it, but that sort of young anger carried through for most of my life and still does, I guess, unfortunately. But um, if you understand what I'm saying, it was a response, not a, oh, poor is me. Oh, whoa, I hope it doesn't happen again. How do I avoid this? It wasn't that. It was, go ahead, burn me, but you're not going to break me. I don't know where that came from. I don't know why I took that road as opposed to the road of my siblings who really have lived in anxiety and stress. Tom Schneider is our guest today. The book is The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man, available at Amazon.com, wherever books are sold. Um, so you're 16 years old, and and clearly um, your family took the fun out of dysfunction. I mean, it, this was bad oh, news yes. as a kid. Um, and you, you said you bailed out at 16. Did you finish yes. high school? No, I never graduated from high school. It's kind of my claim to fame. Uh, people say, oh, you're a doctor. What kind are you? I say, I'd say mediocre. <laughs> and and uh, I said, I'm not sure I'd go to me. I don't have a high school diploma. And nobody believes me. But that, in fact, is the truth. I uh, did not get a high school diploma. And I certainly don't want to bore you, but I, I think everybody in their life has a turning point, a point where you somehow remember this is what made a difference. And so I, at 16, left home about three months before finishing a Jesuit prep school in New York. Now, I had been thrown out of three other ones. So this was the, the fourth, my last chance. I was a senior and uh, I ran away from home. So what do you do? Well, you go into the Bronx and you steal cars and you meet up with the wrong kinds of people and you do the wrong kind of things. Uh, and then somewhere along the line, because of the education that I'd had and, and the experiences, I realized, Tommy boy, you've got to go to college or you're going to end up like your buddy. I won't use his name. He's deceased. He was actually executed in Sing Sing but I was living with him in the Bronx and all of that said, it's time. You got to do something. So I need to go to college. Well, how do you go to college without a high school diploma? You don't. I went back to my prep school uh, uh, and I, I apologize for the length of this little bit of the story, but it really was critical in my life. And I hope everybody has one like it. I went back to the print of the Dean of my prep school, who was a Jesuit priest and said, and, and went in and said, this is my, this, he knew my life. I said, this is my status. This, I need to go to college. He said, of course you do. Now, if you don't know Jesuits, you need to know they are brilliant and incredibly insightful. And he said, of course you do. You just need a diploma. Well, you've been through all the classes, Tom. You just didn't take your finals. So he reached into the drawer and he pulled out a blank diploma. God's truth, Burke, I swear I can remember this as though it was yesterday. 
He said, I just, how do you, it's Thomas, right? Yeah. Middle initial time. I'm sorry. R. Yeah. And Schneider, S-C-H-N-E-I-D. I got it written down here. I'll just sign this and there's your diploma and you can apply and hop into colleges. Wow. In fact, you had already applied. Isn't that fantastic? And I said, oh my gosh. And I started to cry. And he said, yeah, let me just sign. And Tom, just, just before I sign it, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Oh yes, father. Anything, anything, yeah, anything I can steal hubcaps for you, whatever, just huh. please sign the diploma was what I was thinking. He said, yeah, I just have a question for you because you've been in these Jesuit schools, you know, the Jesuit philosophy is what do we graduate here from Fordham prep? Who, who do we graduate? I said, Oh, you, you graduate, uh, young boys. Uh, he said, no, no, no. Try again. I said, Oh, oh I meant young religious Catholic boys. N- no, no, Tom, that that's not it. Oh, I'm sorry, Father. I don't know. He said, well, why don't I tell you? Yes, please. His face changed. His posture changed. I remember this. This is oh, living it now. Moved forward behind his desk and said, Tom, we graduate men. And he said, do you know what a man does? I said, uh, at that point, I was crying and had no idea. I went, Not exactly. Funny. He said, they take responsibility for their actions. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sign this and you can walk out of here and your problems are gone and you can go on to college or you can face this like a man and be one of the few men that actually did graduate from Fordham prep as a man and take responsibility. What's it going to be? I, I to this day cannot remember saying, Oh, give, give me the hard road. <laughs> I wanted to say just sign father. It was a great story. I love hearing it, but, your signature will do just fine. But I just was crying and didn't say anything. And he said, so you don't want me to sign? And I shook my head. No, I don't want you to sign. And he said, you're a true man. And I got up and I left. Wow. I never to this day have a diploma from high school. Unbelievable. Now you, yeah. Now, here's your question is, well, how do you get to college on that? I, I didn't say I was a good man. I said it was an ordinary man, and an ordinary man has to survive. And so how did I survive? I got on a bus at the terminal in Manhattan, and I took a bus up to Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts, a Jesuit college, and I knocked on the door at 7.30 in the morning on a Saturday, and Father Joseph Donahue opened the door. How can I help you? And I said, quote, unquote, I want to become a Jesuit priest. That's quite the turnaround from your background. Yes. What are the odds for you or your listeners saying, what what an amazing turn of events from that? Or would you say, that lying son of a gun, he's just weaseling. And that would be the correct answer. I had no more intention of becoming a Jesuit priest than the man in the moon. But it looked like a nice opportunity, three square meals a day, better than my buddy who was at Sing Sing. He was getting three squares, but was going to end up in another kind of a chair. And uh, so literally, I talked to him all day, said mass, served mass with him for him, and uh, they accepted me. I made it a year and a half before that same priest who ultimately later baptized my kids. He said to me, Thomas, he always called me Thomas instead of Thomas. He said, Thomas, I think you've made a mistake. Really? Yes, this is called a vocation not a vacation. And so I think you need to move on. Anyway, I, of course, was crying at that point. The war was going on. He said, you can stay in college. You'll pay us back. 
but I, the Jesuit route is not for you. And so that's what I did. I stayed on. I worked. I, I enlisted in the Navy for some money. I worked at a pizza factory and at a bra factory on the weekends and finished at Holy Cross. Uh, was an enlisted man in the Navy. My chief said, how's your vision? I said, I can see you. He said, good. There's a war going on. How'd you like to fly jets? Uh, and the next thing I knew, I was on my way to Pensacola to jet training. Dr. Tom Schneider, our guest today, we're talking about uh, his extraordinary life that is now a book from Ballast Books called The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man, Surviving When Life Sucks, available at Amazon.com and wherever books are sold. Um, so it's a pretty amazing story. I mean, you, you've got this horrible childhood. You somehow, through uh, grit or perseverance or stubborn hard-headedness, managed to make it out of there. You drop out of school. You BS your way into college, and then you did something that, that I think would give a lot of younger folks pause who are listening right now. You voluntarily enlisted in the Navy during Vietnam, during wartime. So what led to that decision? Well, that's a great question, Burke. Uh, I enlisted while I was at Holy Cross for the money. It meant once a month I would go over to South Weymouth, Massachusetts, and scrub planes and, and oil carburetors and oil planes uh, for the money. It didn't seem like much, like $126 a month. But for me, who had nothing, uh, I needed the money. So it was it was really hunger <laughs> that drove me to enlist. And uh, when you and, went into the uh, the Navy and, and you're approached and, and they say, hey, look, we can uh, – we can teach you how to fly airplanes. You were already, I guess, working, it sounds like, around the airport there. Um, it, it was flying a plane something that was a burning desire for you? Was it something you'd always aspired to do, or did that just sort of fall into your lap? Another great question. A great question. So I'd love to say to you, oh, I love the wings of gold in flying since I was a youth. But I was an enlisted man uh, making very little money and working in oil and grease around planes in South Weymouth. And I had a chief who was a senior enlisted who was in charge of me and said, you know, you're graduating. You will have a diploma. That means you can become an officer and go to officer school. I said, oh, great. I really had no interest in doing that. I said, or you can stay enlisted and go to riverboats. Riverboats? Really? What's that, chief? Well, you'll be on a little riverboat running up and down the Mekong uh, River um, between Laos and Vietnam and, um, your life expectancy, I think the life expectancy was, I think it was 17 hours. It was, it was some 28 hours. Wow. I mean, the, 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 yeah, the mortality was horrendous. And I said, or you can go to Pensacola, uh, beautiful beaches and, uh, they'll teach you how to fly and, uh, you'll become an officer. And so, so this decision crystallizes in your mind pretty easily. Yeah, it was not. It was not a Jeopardy quiz. It yeah. was. It was pretty simple. So I went to Pensacola and um, became a pilot, Navy pilot. Went on carriers and went over to Vietnam. What I didn't calculate was this is not flying for Delta. This is not the same as Eastern Airlines. This these are people that over there who are shooting at you. And so, uh, as you already know from the book, is that I was shot down twice. Uh, in Vietnam and unfortunately landed in Agent Orange, which we had been dropping. I mean, it wasn't something the North Vietnamese were spreading. We were doing it as a as an anti-foliage and uh, it was an, it still is an incredible toxin. Uh, if anybody wants to know how bad it is, if you've ever had weeds 
and gone to the hardware store and bought some Roundup, uh, and it will kill the weeds in 48 hours. They are dead, and nothing's going to grow there for a while. That's Agent Orange. And Agent Orange is jack in you that up product. if you're in the middle of it. Right, and it's and and so I I uh, I spent uh, a number of hours in the Agent Orange swimming pools of the rice paddies. And uh, subsequently developed just one medical disaster after another. So I have to ask you about your time flying um, pre-being shot down. You actually had to to take off and land on aircraft carriers. And the closest most of us will ever get to that is is a Hollywood movie, a Top Gun kind of thing. Um, sure. Compare and contrast what it's really like to fly as a Navy fighter pilot as opposed to what we see on television in the movies? Yeah, that's a, another great question. So I, I would say to you now, um, I've, I've done, I don't mean this, I'm too, at 77, I am too old to have any ego or arrogance left, but I will tell you, in medicine, I've done a number of different things, extraordinarily difficult surgical cases on people's necks, around their carotid arteries. So very nerve-wracking, um, having to be in control doesn't come close to landing on an aircraft carrier at night in a monsoon rainstorm in the South China Sea. It is absolutely, I, I, I don't know the word, it's not fear, go beyond fear. It's enraging panic. Now, here's the truth. When you watch Top Gun, Tom Cruise hops out of his F-14, hits the deck, has a swagger, and everybody mounds around him, and they walk off the deck. When Tom Schneider landed at night at 1030 in a rainstorm in the South China Sea, catching the three wire, I would walk off my plane with a swagger, with my flight suit pulled up around my elbows, because you had to have it pulled up and look really swagger, carrying my helmet with a swagger. And I would go where? Directly to my birth directly to my room on the aircraft direct do not stop do not get coffee do not say hello directly and i would spend a good hour not to turn off your listeners i was on the head that's yeah. a navy expression for the toilet i was petrified and saying to myself don't ever do that again oh my god oh, i can't believe oh jesus that was frightening but come out Go back to the ready room to debrief. How'd it go, T-Bone? That was my call sign. How'd it go, T-Bone? Piece of cake, rock. Just sinker. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Because that's the act. That's the optics that you gave to your fellow pilots. When one of your fellow pilots was shot down and killed or taken prisoner, were you in mourning? No. It was, you know, oh, man, man. He, he really wasn't that good a pilot. Uh, I, I can't believe he did that. Why was he straight from that low? There was always something wrong with the pilot. It's, there's no way that could happen to you. you. You had to divorce you as a group with them when one was injured. Now, as a group on the carrier flying in, in formation, uh, yes, we were a bonded group of crazy people. But when somebody was shot down or hurt, no, no, no. Uh, it was their fault. Uh, they should have trained harder. They weren't awake. Whatever the reason was, it wasn't going to happen to you. 
Now, when I got shot down, my immediate response was, it did happen to you. <laughs> and so uh, I'm a little slower than the average bird, but I took two of them to said, I think it's time to move on to something else. What an incredible way to make a living. I mean, you, you, uh, you're earning your dollars and then some. So after you're shot down a second time, does the Navy look at you and say, okay, look, we're, uh, we're kind of tired of you destroying our multi-million dollar aircraft. You're done. Or uh, how is it that you separate from the Navy and being a fighter pilot? Well, none of it is very clean and the end of it, just to let you know, I had a few weeks left and I was, sent to a place called Hue Fubai, which is where the Marines were up at the DMZ and at the line between North and South Vietnam. And uh, because you've got only a few weeks left, let's not go out there and kill yourself. And I went out uh, and a fellow that was in the Navy, uh, senior to me, was flying an, uh, what we call the Goonie Bird. I hate to get into all that statistics. Anyway, he was his job was to fly a twin engine prop, not a fighter plane, and drop off 50-50s. They were enough supplies for 50 men for 50 days. They were compact cigarettes. They were little candies, um, toothpaste, toothbrushes, all sorts of things for 50 days. And we would land at various outposts and drop those off for the grunts that were out in the field. And to make a long story short, he asked me to go with him, and I said, great. It was a different kind of plane that I hadn't flown. So I went with him, and we did, and we dropped them all off. When we landed back in Saigon at the end of the day, I noticed that there were two boxes in the back of the aircraft. And to make a, a, a non-dramatic aspect of this, I told him, hey, we must have missed a couple of spots. There's two in the back. And he yelled at me, said, get out of here. Your job is done. Forget all this. And one of my crew chiefs uh, came to me and said, they're going to be sold. What do you mean sold? They're going to be taken down into Saigon and sold on the black market. Now, this is totally illegal. But from my standpoint, as a Jesuit trained person, I was like, no, it's immoral. It's unethical and it's immoral. In any event, I turned them in. And I was immediately surrounded in back in Hue Fubai with uh, bodyguards because this guy had sort of a group of uh, enlisted and other people who were taking in on the money uh, that they received from selling these in Saigon. And they were concerned that I was going to get friendly fired, which means being shot by your own people or killed or put away or whatever. Sure. Uh, and so they kept me there sort of on guard, almost in prison. There was no prison there, but in what's called hack house arrest uh, until I was sent back to the States because of that episode. I bring that up because everybody sort of thought of everybody, all, everybody who fought in Vietnam, that it was a good worthwhile battle. It was, I didn't leave with that at all. I saw the the evil i saw the stupidity uh and I, I that never left me so today it's 77 people will come up and they say let's put this all together quickly lousy life ran away um navy fighter pilot wow surgeon oh my gosh there he is as a surgeon this guy's got to be hardcore let's go over and kick some butt in another war let's go to afghanistan let's go somewhere what do you think tom and my mine is exactly the opposite. Mine is, I never want to see a war again. I never want to hear a war again until somebody's coming on my beach in San Francisco. I don't live there, but unless somebody's, I don't. War is hell. 
I mean, it's just so horrendous that you can't describe it. And we've built up this image that, you know, it's a wonderful thing. We needed to do I didn't leave with that. I left with, wow, there's a lot of evil and incredible stupidity. I would fly over sites that were laden with North Vietnamese, with Charlie, which was a North Vietnamese soldier, in fields or near a hamlet. We couldn't bomb them. We could not annihilate them. We were ordered not to. Now, why? Because the people in that village were selling rice and money from the North Vietnamese back to the South Vietnamese in Saigon. And so the leaders, our leaders, the South Vietnamese leaders would say, oh, that little hamlet, that's okay. Really? Yeah, they're giving us money. They're giving us money. Leave it alone. So you couldn't bomb them. You fly over, you'd be shot at, but you could not return fire. Now you sit back after a while, Burke, and you go, where is the sanity here? <laughs> Who's running this show? And, of course, I had lots of names for who was running it by the time I left. Anyway, I didn't mean to go off on that other than to say I did, I did not leave with the glory-bound view. This was a phenomenal thing we did. You know, I, And that's not to take away from the soldiers who, who signed up, gave their lives. I, I have nothing but the utmost respect. I cry every Memorial Day. Uh, anytime I see or read a book about it, I'm tearful because I know the loss and I know how hurtful it was to the families and still is. But it, it, it doesn't take away from the fact that there was an enormous amount of incompetence in running that war. Just astounding. Tom Schneider's our guest today. His book is called The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man, Surviving When Life Sucks from Ballast Books and Dr. Schneider uh, went on to train and practice medicine at Georgetown, Bethesda Naval Hospital, Harvard University, National Institutes of Health. Um, talk to me about that. You come out as a Navy fighter pilot, uh, which which you essentially went into because of the cash. <laughs> you, you wanted to make a little more bread, and you didn't want to go in uh, to a super dangerous situation in Vietnam. You still wound up managing to, uh, to get shot down a couple of times. So what led you to medicine? So I, I came back and my next station was at test pilot school in Patuxent River, Maryland. Uh, and I was there and realized at that point the war is completely wearing down. Uh, there was nothing left. They had excess pilots, excess planes. It was coming to an end. And I really wanted nothing more to do with flying and just was realizing you are one lucky dude to be walking so I applied uh, to medical school uh, out of just a, a whim, I guess, because of my brother Mark, because of my experiences over in Vietnam and seeing the wounded and the injured. And I thought, what the heck? I'm going to give it a whirl. So I applied and went to Admiral Zumwalt. Many of the older folks will remember his name. He came out with Z Grams, and he was the chief of naval operations. And I went to D.C. and told him, uh, I'd like to apply to medical school um, and go rather than serve out the remainder of my tour here in PAX. And he agreed. And I got into Georgetown and the Navy put me through uh, Georgetown Medical School. Uh, and you had went, no interest in, uh, you know, many military pilots become commercial aircraft pilots. You No interest in that at all for you. Well, you know, it was, I think because I was raised to look for the challenge, to kind of go ahead, try that thing that I was telling you about in the beginning. Because when we came back from Vietnam, most of us 
were offered, particularly East. I was picked up by a company no longer around called Eastern Airlines, and they would come hire us for a dollar a year while we were still in the military. And so we were gaining longevity with the company so that when we did get out of the Navy, we'd be coming in to Eastern with two years longevity or whatever it was. So I had signed with Eastern Airlines. And I remember lying in bed saying, this is your life. And again, the philosophy of having lived with Jesuits constantly drove home the why, that 25th letter of the alphabet, why in everything. And I said, why, why do you want to fly for Eastern? How are you going to feel when you're, oh, 77, my age? I was a bus driver in the sky. I mean, what did I do? for humanity. I blew up a bunch of places, uh, but I didn't accomplish anything. I didn't leave good on this planet when I died. And so I looked around and looked around. I thought about teaching and I looked seriously at it, Burke, but I thought I'll be bored. I'll, I'll teach for a year and I have to teach it again next year. The same stuff. Couldn't do it. That was gone. And so medicine came into view, and that's exactly what I did, applied, and was very fortunate Georgetown accepted me. Why? I have no idea, but they did. I'm forever grateful. In fact, in the back of my book, I have dedications, and Georgetown Med is one of the dedications I give because it, it changed my life. Pretty insightful for a young guy in his 20s to uh, to think about that, but uh, it truly is a book about being able to do anything, no matter how rough your your circumstances. Uh, before we let you jump, because you did have a, a long and, and pretty colorful medical career, a couple of highlights from those decades of, of practicing medicine. You have five different specialties, but when you look back on your medical career, what are you most proud of? Wow, what an insightful question. I think what I am most proud of, this is going to sound wrongly, so I'll, I'll convert it. I in in five, I was in five different specialties and I practiced medicine for 40 years and in 40 years I was never sued. I never went to court, was never sued. And I say is that an accomplishment? No, because the derivative of that is what I'm most proud of and that is the reason that I wasn't sued is because I truly every single day, I don't mean this egotistically, it was what saved me. I cared about every single patient I saw. And I always asked that question, why? So if somebody came into me with a chronic drainage uh, from a nostril, uh, it wasn't, okay, take a, take a little Sudafed. It was, why? Why do you have that? And I would look and see, and oh my gosh, it's a nasopharyngeal carcinoma. It's a cancer. It can't be seen by the average person, but with the technology I had, I was able to do it. So it was always asking why and then realizing this is devastating to this patient and just as devastating to his family. So I would call their families in, explain everything, spend time. Every patient that I ever operated on, I called on Saturday morning. My kids knew Saturday from 9 to 1130, dad's on the phone and he's going to call the patients that he operated on this week to see how they're doing. And it saved my hiney so many times. I would call, how are you doing? That was a big operation we did. 
Yeah, it's just oozing a little bit on my neck. Is that normal? No, why don't I meet you in the office in a couple of minutes? And I would go in and be able to salvage what could have been a disaster had it continued. So it was always that caring for people that I don't mean egotistically, but I mean, I truly enjoyed that because I realized with all the things that happened to me medically, it, it's getting through the fear and knowing somebody cares. Uh, you, you know, we had to, uh, not to run you off the course, but so it's letting patients know. I, in the book, I, I define some words, the word doctor. I've asked a zillion doctors, what does it mean? What does the word doctor mean? You are one, or as we say in the Bronx, you is one. What is a doctor? <laughs> and, and of course, nobody knows, none of them. And it comes from the Latin docere, and it means to teach. That's your job is to teach, not to give a pill for every ill, but it is literally to teach the patient how to avoid it in the future. Why did this happen? And what are we going to do together as a team to overcome and survive this? Or if we're not going to survive it, we're going to fight it comfortably to the end. And, and that principle of the phrase that I used to give to medical students was patients don't give a rat. They don't care what you know. They want to know that you care. And that's very optic you know, Fifth Avenue advertising kind of phrase. But it's so true. They want to know this guy cares. He's not sitting there going, so we'll take care of it next. And, and you know, next, uh, you know, my wife just had cataract surgery two weeks ago. Okay, cataract surgery. She went to the doctor five times beforehand, billing, scheduling, drops to prepare, uh, explanation of what the procedure was going to be, uh, how she's going to be seen afterwards. Five different appointments and scheduling for the cataracts. She never met the surgeon. Never. But she had her surgery, so certainly she was going to see him. No, she was asleep. He did the cataract surgery, was supposed to be seen post-op. Well, he's going to see her post-op and say it did one. No, seen by a separate ophthalmologist closer to her home. She has to this day never met the surgeon who operated on her eye. To me as a surgeon, that's astounding. That's incredible. Now, people may sit there and say, well, I hope your wife's ophthalmologist isn't here and he's going to be very upset. I could care less. That's right. That's I think disgrace. we call him out right now on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's a disgrace. Anyway, uh, so th that's a long answer to one of my most proud of, and that is really caring for every single one I saw in the office, e even the angry ones, the whatever ones, uh, trying to turn them around. Uh, and that's what I enjoyed most about the medicine. I love the conversation, love the book too, The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man Surviving When Life Sucks. Our guest is Dr. Tom Schneider. The book available from Ballast Books at Amazon.com, wherever books are sold. If you need a dose of motivation, this is the book for you. What a great summertime read. Tom, thanks for being with us today. You have been a joy. I cannot tell you these are cheap words, but they come from my heart. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it, Burke. You're a whiz, and thank you again so very, very much. That's Dr. Tom Schneider. We appreciate that. And uh, check out the book, The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man from Ballast Books, wherever great books are sold. Thank you, SpeakerMatch.com, for making the show possible, and thank you for listening. Wherever you go, 
Whatever you do today, make it a great day. Bye, everybody. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.